biology. 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 Hello and welcome to another episode of the HSC Biology Podcast. Today I would like to welcome another very special guest to the podcast and that is Professor Vanessa Hayes from the Garvin Institute. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. And uh, welcome to everyone who's starting the HSC. I, um, I couldn't actually think of a better person to address this dot point to and I want to say a very quick thank you to Lauren uh, McKnight for getting me in contact with you. So I'll just quickly read the dot point out and then we can kind of talk about your, your research and, uh, and, and all that. So the, the dot point itself is investigate the use of data, uh, of data analysis from a large-scale collaborative project to identify trends, patterns and relationships, for example, and we're going to be looking at population genetics relating to human evolution. So you've obviously done a lot in the field, not just relating to this, but as we were saying in the pre-interview, this is something that you're more well known for um, as it came up uh, in the Nature magazine and and the Eureka Prize and all that. So um, I guess before we get into the research itself, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background in science and how you ended up where you are now, which isn't necessarily where we're heading today, but where you currently are in your position? Yeah. Well, thank you, Luke. Yeah. Um... As I always say to to youngsters, um, you know, being a scientist is about 50% of it is is having the brain power, the interest to do it. But 50% is definitely passion. Um, So I definitely got into this field because of passion. Um, If you can't hear my accent, I grew up in South Africa, a country in turmoil at that time, Um, uh, but a country of diversity. And so I fell in love with diversity and and everything that I landed up studying was actually all around me, which was how the same we are as the human species, yet how different we we are and how our genes determine those traits and those differences. Um, And so I became interested from a very young age. I would tell my parents when I was five that I wanted to know how the human body worked. And my parents said, can you please just tell, say you want to be a doctor? And I'd get very angry and say, I don't want to be a doctor because I thought doctors only saw people with a cough or a cold. I wanted to know how the body worked, but I didn't understand. And I used to say, I'm going to cut them open. My parents got really disturbed by this redheaded girl saying she's going to cut people open. So um, I may not have understood that that was DNA or that was genetics, But um, it definitely came from my roots and things that I saw around me. Um, And I didn't know until much later in life that my past dictated my future. Um, And all of that built together to to be the scientist that I am. So I'm very grateful, actually, for growing up where I did. So your current position is the, um, is it the, Cancer, the Human Comparative and Prostate Cancer Research Head, is that right? Yeah, so I, I wear uh, too many hats, but a, a good <laughs> couple of hats. I'm the Petri Chair of Prostate Cancer Research at the University of Sydney. I am the head of the Human Comparative and Prostate Cancer Genomics Lab at the Garvin Institute. I also wear a hat at UNSW and I also wear um, two hats on um, professorships in South Africa. 
um, and I collaborate with people around the world and that is what science is. Science is not you sitting as a silo in your lab, it's about being international. And I think we've really learned that with COVID. Um, that is one thing COVID has definitely taught us that if we're going to sit alone and think we can do things alone, this is a world issue. Um, science is, is a world um, uh, job that you do. So we do this together. Very well said. And I, uh, like I said, the perfect person for this dot point because your collaborations are something that, you know, we could talk about a lot of the projects you've done. I know that you've worked, I think, on the Tasmanian Devil Genome Project Correct. as well, which is a uh, another project that a lot of uh, people suggested I could go through with this um, with this topic. So I decided to go down the human evolution one, but only recently learned that you're on that um, that project as well. So maybe we might have to do a special later in the year or something. Um but yeah, that's it's just amazing to see all the different things that you've uh, you've managed to get through, um, as well as doing what you're currently doing, which is you know working in the cancer research lab. But today we're going to be looking a bit more at the human uh, oh, sorry the uh, human origin research you did recently, um, which is super interesting. I mean, you you like from the videos and things that I've seen, you're you're in Africa, you're on the on the ground, you know, doing the research for real. So. Very exciting stuff, and and it's and it's wonderful to yeah again talk to another scientist that is out there doing things, so the students can can see how important this work is and, and what it means. So um, let's talk a little bit about that now. Um, and I know that one of the speeches I saw you talking about, you, you referred to yourself as a genomicist. So do you want to just explain what a genomicist is to those at home listening? Sure. So one of the questions I always get is why do I call myself a genomicist? What, what happened to the word geneticist? Um, so when I, when I started out in this field, there was a term called genetics. In fact, genomics didn't exist as a term, um, which is just showing how old I am or how fast, I like to say rather, how fast science moves. Um, but there, there was a reason for that. When we spoke about genetics, we actually only spoke about two to 3% of the human genome because that was all the part of the genome that we knew. Um, and that was the part that coded for proteins. We have about 20,000 proteins in the DNA in our body. But, um, and so we could only look at that part. Um, and main, mainly because technology was holding us back. Um, there was this idea that the rest was junk DNA. Um, a lot of us didn't believe it could be junk. Um, we just didn't know what it did yet. So, but, it all changed with the revolution, the techno technological revolution, which was our ability to actually read every letter of the code that spells human. And that is the genome. And whether it's of a species like the Tasmanian devil or of humans, the genome is the entire code. So when we talk about being a genomicist, um, my team always investigates the entire code whether it's of a cancer cell or of the human, in the human blood, we look at every letter. So six billion letters, three billion from mom, three billion from dad. Wonderful. And that, you know, used to take a lot of time, as Lauren uh, explained in, in a episodes a few, a few weeks ago. Uh, but now it's obviously cut down uh, quite a bit in terms of time. And I know that you're one of the... And money. And money, which is definitely important in science to, uh, to minimise that cost so you can do more with it. Uh, but I know you brought a lot of that technology to Garvin and um, you're instrumental in sort of uh, pushing forward on that, on, on that front, which is probably why you're able to do such, you know, valuable research 
in the way that you did um, on the ground in Africa. So why don't we get into that now and just um, run us through sort of what your idea was when that project started and maybe how you got into it and then and a little bit about what it is. Okay. So how I got into it was um, pure frustration. I was working <laughs> back in uh, now a long time ago. Uh, I, I was finished my PhD in 1999 in the Netherlands. Um, I returned to South Africa and was handed over a lab and I started working at the time, which is very interesting to um, the students now, we were fighting another virus at the time. It wasn't SARS-CoV-2, which uh, is the virus responsible for COVID-19, but it was the HIV virus responsible for AIDS. And I'd returned back to South Africa where AIDS or um, HIV had become a pandemic um, in the country. So it was my ethical obligation to convert my expertise to the pandemic on the ground. And my frustration was immediate because I realized then what the problem was in science. Science was driven by money. It wasn't driven by need. So therefore, all the work being done on HIV was being done in the USA, mainly, and then um, in Europe. Of course, AIDS and HIV was known as a homosexual disease, which it wasn't. It was a heterosexual disease that was impacting more women in Africa than anybody else. So it was being misdiagnosed, it was being mislabeled, um, and therefore uh, people were not going to the cause and to the root of this um, pandemic. And so that was my frustration because in Africa where it was a pandemic, um, it, it was a different virus, different viral strain. You may have heard of the UK strain, for example, with COVID, there's the South African strain in Brazil. Um, these were uh, these are uh, more severe strains. Will they um, infect him faster? And, and was the same with HIV. We had different strains. So, um, you know, the research had to take into consideration these strains. But what was interesting in my lab, we were interested in the host, and the host was different. And there's more genetic diversity in Africa. Yet all the research and all the drugs and all the vaccination trials were all being done on people with pale skin um, living in the USA. And therefore, it, it was very unlikely that these drugs um, were going to be effective in the rarely place where we needed them. Um, so that's where I actually said back in 2000, the Human Genome Project is wrong. We should be sequencing Africans. Um, and didn't know that I would go on to be to lead the project that actually sequenced the first African. But it was purely out of scientific frustration because we could see working with HIV that um, the drugs that were currently being made on for, for HIV were not going to work on the populations that needed it the most, um, purely because the research wasn't being done in Africa. It wasn't seen as cost effective. Amazing. Yeah, something that I didn't know even today that there were different strains of the HIV virus and yeah. for you to come to the conclusion that the variations may be, you know, a part of it. I think, I don't know if you know much about the investigating science course, but it, there's one particular section where they talk about how, you know, opportunity leads to science and, and it just seemed like, you know, circumstance led to your thought, which led to the idea and that 
obviously continued on to the research that you did. Um, but yeah, like discovering microwaves and things like that, they're all those chance or, or moment events where somebody has a thought that is different to other people. And it's amazing that it, it turned out the way that it did. Um, so the research on the ground, so that obviously led you to um, sequencing the first, so you said the first African, was it a complete uh, genome sequence or was it mitochondrial at that point? No, complete genome. So we sequenced uh, the first African and the first indigenous, the first for Australia and the first genome. Um, and this is going to be, I think, interesting and probably you could have a whole lot of questions around it. The first genome with ethical consent of a public figures, if that makes sense. So the first human genome, the first uh, the human genome project was actually a collection of about 20 individuals and the DNA was pulled together and they made libraries and the complicated and they sequenced. And there was a reason for that because no one knew what to do to ethically put a genome out there that actually represented one person. So the idea was to make it a, a mix of people without an identity but of course you can identify someone as soon as their DNA sequence is out there. We in fact know who's the majority of DNA was out there. It happened to be one of the scientists. <laughs> so, you know, us scientists could figure it out. Um, so that was the idea. Um, and that was the end of the Human Genome Project called together in 2001, completed again in 2003, um, sort of finished off, but we still didn't have a human genome of an individual and that was very important because it we needed to know what would make up one person so yes the human genome project gave us the code but what it didn't give us is is what is required for one person what does one person look like mm -hmm. and so in 2007 the first human genome came out and that was of Craig Venter um, which was followed a year later by Jim Watson um, done on the first technology. So you will hear these names. Hopefully the students have heard these names. If What's not, um, <laughs> they certainly are characters. Um, these are all grey-haired men, genomicists. Um, and so the first seven genomes were all grey-haired males um, in science. Yeah. And the reason for that is not just because scientists like um, reading their own DNA. It's, it's actually was for ethical reasons. Um, there was there was no problem then with society saying, well, I pushed that button. I put my DNA sequence out there. In fact, Jim Watson held some of the information back. He's never released it because he didn't want the world to know whether he was at risk for Alzheimer's or dementia. Mm. Um, so it's called the APOE gene. He held that information back. Craig Venter decided, I don't care. You can know everything about me. And he put it up, for example. Um, so up until that point, uh, there was no African. There was certainly no indigenous genome. Um, I knew what was coming. I couldn't believe that no one was doing it. It, was, it wasn't rocket science that we needed to do an African mm. genome. Um, but also, no one had done a non-scientist, a public figure or a non-public figure. And that was the reason, originally it was meant to be Mandela. Madiba, I approached his office, but he was very sick at that stage. And 
I couldn't have someone who would not be able to um, answer the questions in the press and and it was clear that he was very, very ill um, towards the end. And he didn't live, you know, for a long time after that. Um, so I approached the Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who was still very much in the media, very vocal, uh, very involved in the Human Genome Project, actually. Um, so although he jokes about it, he definitely understood what was going on. Um, and he could be a voice. And, and the fact that he was also a religious man was very important for Africa because, um, you know, that that is an important criteria across the continent. So he could actually resonate with more than just South Africans. He could resonate across the continent um, to a lot of people. Um, so, yes, it, he became him along with a gentleman called Toby, um, and that is his name. Uh, you probably have never heard of him before, but he lives in the Kalahari Desert in Namibia, became the first two non-scientists in the world to have their DNA sequenced. Amazing. And uh, uh, doesn't isn't uh, even able to read or write, yet we managed to ethically approve him. So it was a huge task, huge effort, um, but certainly um, absolutely well worth it. Amazing. And what a story. I mean, uh, like trying to, you know, get the genomes of um, some pretty high profile individuals must have been an interesting moment um, in their lives as well for someone to ask them if I can, you know, see your DNA, please. It's a, a strange question, but it sounds like, you know, people were willing and, and the fact that they're making it public and available sounds like the most um, or the greatest thing, at least for science and for everybody else. Um, so when you... When you sequenced, I'm not going to pronounce his name. Uh, the Toby. two, <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank you. Uh, <laughs> what What did you notice? Like, did you immediately start to compare it, or, or was it like you you started to to know that it was different? Like, what was your initial thoughts when you when you first sequenced them? Look, I expected to see what I saw, um, because we had been working and I've been working in Southern Africa my whole life. Um, so even though I was working just on particular genes, I knew the extent of the diversity in Africa. So just to explain this to the students, um, the closer you get to your human origins, the more diverse the human genome. And I just want that to sink in because a lot of people struggle with that and a lot of scientists even struggle with that concept. So the way it is, is the longer we've had time to evolve naturally through Darwin's natural selection, the more we'll have variation occur over time in our human genome. But then what happens is genetic bottlenecks. And these are usually caused during our population decline. So it can be a disease, but usually it's a migration event where a subpopulation of people, a group of people, a family, decides to wander off and never see the mother family again. So they decide to go somewhere else and then create a population out of that. And this happens in every species. And that's what we call a genetic bottleneck. So you lose the original variability and what you're left with, although we all came from the same family, what you're left with with that branch or family is just a variability of what started. 
So everyone outside of Africa, everyone, comes from approximately a thousand people that left Africa roughly 70,000 years ago. So that means we all come from whatever the diversity of those a thousand people were. Only two maternal lines, not two women, <laughs> otherwise they would have been busy. It's two maternal lines, so in other words, related to each other, left Africa. Of course, there were a lot of different migrations in and out of Africa, but this was the most, this was the successful one of people living and breathing today. So that means it was a massive bottleneck, a decline in that diversity where they lost what was left behind. Whereas in Africa, the populations have continued to, yes, of course you've had this diversification, but populations that have not uh, migrated as much or um, had longer in their homeland area or the area where we came from have had more time to have variation, natural variation, good variation. So it's not a, it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. And so we knew this. Um, and now just to put it into perspective, every single person outside of Africa, if they have their genome of roughly 6 billion, so 3 billion from mom, 3 billion from dad, to anyone else that they meet in the street outside of Africa, if they're not of African ancestry, will have roughly 3.1 to about 3.4 million differences to anyone else they meet in that genome. When we seek, so that's what Craig Venter had, that's what Jim Watson had when you call, compared Jim and Craig, for example. But when we compared Tutu to Craig and Jim, we saw 4.2 million variants between him and Craig Venter, for example. When we compared Toby to Craig Venter, 5.2 million. So we were able in that project, which was why it made such world news, was not only for the fact that we had sequenced the first Africans, but we added in one single paper of two human genomes, complete genomes, we added more data to the database of information than was added previously because we had chosen um, to work in Africa. So the amount of information gained far exceeded all seven genomes before that. Uh, so 1.3 million new variants we could add to the database, which gave us knowledge about us as humans, because we all come from one human family. And that's like, you know, it would have been amazing to see that sort of all come together. I imagine when you got the results and it was as you thought, like your hypothesis or your, your idea at the time was that it was going to be that. And then it came to fruition. That would have been a nice feeling. And um, I know we talk about a bit of the stuff you just mentioned there. So bottlenecking is in our syllabus and it's under the title of genetic drift. And, yes. and I think you yourself have used the example where you talk about putting a bunch of jelly beans into a jar, yes. you shake them up and you tip a few out. And the ones that come out are, there might only be a red and a green that come out. That's your new variant when all the old variants are, you know, everything else left in that jar. And so you're losing all that variability. And, and we say similar, like, um, you know, bottlenecking or random chance events, like they can be yeah, migrations or even, even volcanoes or things that go beyond the natural selection. So that was one thing that I thought was really good to mention because it comes up again in the syllabus for the students. Um, 
and yeah, the differences between them. So around like you know twenty five percent, forty percent differences between you know uh, individuals over a seventy thousand year period or or whatever it might be. That's quite significant. Um, and I'm wondering what does that what does that variation mean to those individuals that have those variants? Are they more ad- adaptable? Do they have different um, uh, like you know vi- uh, adaptations? Like uh, uh, you, do you know what I mean? Like what are those variations giving those individuals that maybe w- we don't have? Yeah, so we do spend quite a lot of time looking at this variation. Um, so what you will find these variants are quite common and they have occurred over time so usually they're quite either beneficial or what we call neutral so when people think of very we we use the word variation now as genomicists um sometimes the syllabus will still use the word mutation i tend to move away from that word because it has a connotation of deleterious So when we use the word mutation, we will say it's a deleterious mutation. In other words, it causes a negative phenotypic effect. Um, But a mutation can be positive. Um, I always use, when I give a talk to audience, I ask, who is lactose intolerant? And you'll have about 10 to 20, 10% put their hands up. Now I'll say to them, you are all the normal people. Now everyone else who didn't put their hand up, all the lactose tolerant ones, you are the mutants, you are the (laughs) X-Men. So if you just think of it that way, why? Because we were all lactose intolerant. Lactose tolerance is a mutation which happened at the event of agriculture. So um, it depends how you're viewing it, right? We shouldn't be stealing milk from from moms, but we do now and it's fine. We're allowed to do it. I'm not saying everyone ought to stop drinking milk. We have evolved to be able to do that. So that's why I like to use the word variant. Um, But we have these variants and we will have, each person will carry about 50 variants that cause a phenotypic difference. And most times we'll go through life not knowing what they are unless they call something that, you know, is really going to cause a change um, that is going to make you susceptible to some disease and we'll probably find out about them. Um, But otherwise we probably wouldn't uh, unless it does that. In the populations where we study, where they have a lot of variation, we're learning a lot about what it means to be healthy, um, how we have evolved. We spend a lot of time studying disease, but we really don't know what our code is that spells healthy and i do argue um quite often that these populations do represent our best representation of healthy because a lot of them have never seen a western doctor they have not kept live been kept alive from birth through modern medicine they truly have had to survive and they have adapted amazing methods of survival which we have lost Um, Some of them is the ability to store water, for example, in their bodies. They can go seven days without drinking water and live in a semi-desert. They laugh at me because they know I can't do that. Um, They laugh at how sunburned I get. Um, They laugh at a lot of things about me, um, especially how big my feet are. They say I'm very bad at running away from elephants um, because my feet are too big. I don't think my feet are big, but they think my feet are big. So you can learn a lot from people by asking them how weird you are, you know, how different you are. Because those differences are actually really subtle, but we can learn so much about our biology and how clever we are 
that we've adapted to these environments. Um, so yeah, these populations have had longer time to adapt, but genetics is amazing. The genome is amazing because there are events in nature where we've adapted extremely fast, like the tolerance of lactose, the ability to drink milk, happened independently in Europe and in Africa. Same gene, different mutation, but it was a need and it happened. The fairer skin, I mean, that's an obvious adaptation, um, you know, vitamin D deficiency. We are very clever as a species to adapt to our environment. So this variation, uh, what we have learned um, is, so what you will find outside of Africa is a slightly higher chance of rarer genetic conditions because of less variability than you would find in Africa. That That is definitely something we do see. And that's something we talk about a lot in the Year 11 syllabus where mm -hmm. variation is the key to success. And yeah. having more variability leads to greater selection uh, in, in changing environments. And so another good lesson if uh, there's any Year 11 students listening, but um, it still it does come up in the Year 12 syllabus. I think it came up in the 2019 paper. They talked about natural selection and lactose, actually. I think that was the question, which yeah. they kind of sprung on us. Um, so, you know, it's good to go over those old topics. Um, yeah. So, again... Super interesting stuff, and I, I wonder where the um, the mitochondrial DNA came in because you talk about sequencing, and you're obviously talking about the whole genome. But I know that a lot of the research is around the mitochondrial uh, DNA or the mito DNA. I think you called it um, mito genome. Mito genome, and how that relates to this research is that just how you found the differences, or is that just how you found they're the like original <laughs> people or humankind? Great. No, great question. So um, let's just take a step back. So the genome obviously is the entire complement. Um, and as I've been mentioning, around 3 billion from mom, 3 billion from dad. But I also like to joke and say, moms, we give our children more than dad does. Um, we also give the mitre genome, um, which is about 16,500 letters. And it only comes from mom. Um, dad gets it males get it but you get it from mum um, and you yeah so men don't pass it on now our last paper we used the mitogenome and there was a reason for this um, there's a couple of reasons because the mitogenome is only inherited from mum well first of all let's take another step back we use dna differences these variations as something we call a molecular clock because these variants or mutations occur at a regular rate over time, we can use that rate and look backwards in time and say, when did two people share a common ancestor? Or when did two species share a common ancestor? Now this is, um, so, that, so a great example is um, a negative example, and that is the picture that you always see of a chimp on one end and human on the other end and this linear progression that we evolved from a chimp. Now if there's nothing else your students will learn from this podcast, that is that is the most incorrect picture that was ever event invented because it is why there is so much uh, controversy about the word evolution or human evolution. Did we evolve from a chimp? No. 
we did not evolve from a chimp. Do we share 99% of our DNA code with a chimp? Yes. But the chimp that was sequenced lives in San Diego today in the zoo. Craig Venter, who was the first man in the world to be sequenced, lives in San Diego next to the zoo, not inside the zoo. Both of those individuals, that chimp and that man, are alive today. How could Craig have evolved from the chimp if the, both of them are breathing today? But they did share a common ancestor. We shared a common ancestor with the chimp. So this is how we use DNA and that 1% of differences to look back in time and say, what was the time frame? Now, the further we go back in time, the more um, error rate we will have. But it is roughly between 4.8 to, say, 5.25 million. We shared a common ancestor with the chimp. What that ancestor looked like, we have no idea until we can find a skeleton, extract DNA from it, and be absolutely certain that that was our common ancestor we did not know. The rest is speculation. Uh, whether it was Australopithecus or whatever, whatever, we don't know. Same with orangutan, same with great apes. We can go back to 12 million years when we shared common ancestor. So this is what we did in our project, is we said, if everybody living and breathing around the world today shared a common ancestor, when was that? And we know that that was to roughly 200,000 years ago. That is why in our paper we talk about a homeland. You will notice we do not, no matter what the press said, we do not talk about a birthplace. We do not talk about Eve. We, not, we don't talk about any of those words because we're not talking about an N equals one. We're talking about a family. When we shared, we last shared a common family. Um, so we do that, we go back in time. So why the mitogenome? The clock of the mitogenome is more stable than the genome. Because it's passed only from mum, the thing that you will learn about in genetics or genomics in school would be recombination. Recombination doesn't occur in the mitogenome. So there were a couple of reasons. One, it's a very good clock. Two, more was known about the clock. So because we were looking for ancient mitogenomes, we needed, our data was only going to be as good as the data out there. And there's not a lot of genomes from Africa still, believe it or not. Although there's a lot of genomes, there's only 2% of, less than 2% of all genomes in the world sequence come from Africa. So there is a massive hole, but there are quite a few mitogenomes. There were a thousand that, that represented the, 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 the tree trunk of our human family. So we needed the data. We weren't going to be able to do it with genomes. And then there was a third reason we only looked at the mum. What we had found out over, after working in Africa for over 20 years is that when people migrate, and, and Africa has obviously been a hub of migration as well. It's usually men. Um, young men like to move. And who do they meet en route? Well, they ladies. So actually, the information that we needed was actually only going to come from the maternal line. 
because it was these ancient people that were living at the southern tip of Africa. When the men migrated in from the northern part of Africa, they did not, it, it, the intermarriages did not happen between a male and the migrating female. It only happened the other way around. So actually the information we found that was missing from our databases was actually found in people who today do not self-identify as a click speaker or a hunter-gatherer. It actually came in people who classify themselves as European, yet were carrying these ancient maternal genomes they didn't even know about. And the reason we knew that was, you asked me, Luke, what was the most exciting thing we discovered when we sequenced Desmond Tutu and Toby? It wasn't actually Toby, it was the Archbishop Desmond Tutu. We discovered he had an ancient mitogenome that not even he knew he was carrying. And when we sequenced it, um, we actually mislabeled it. It was so unique that it didn't exist. And so we mislabeled it. And I've only ever been able to find four people in the world with his mitre, the mitogenome that he has. That's how ancient wow. it is. <laughs> and when I told him, he got so excited because he said, I never thought of my mother being a click speaker, but look at her. And he sent me photographs of her when she was younger. And she has the features. You asked me about people, how they've adapted to the harsh environment. She has all the facial features that are so distinct of hunter-gatherers who grow up in a desert. And she had adapted the high cheekbones, the, the flap over the eyes to protect the eyes. She had them all and he had never thought about it. And he was so excited because he said, now I can truly say I'm from this land, that I go back much further. So uh, that actually, it's his genome way back in 2010, which made me realize we were looking in the wrong place. We were looking for the obvious. Mm. Uh, sequencing the obvious, you know, people who today click speak, and, and they are important. And uh, we're learning a lot from them. But actually there were people who speak a Dutch language or who speak English, who live in the region who are actually carrying these ancient genomes. And that's why we went for the maternal genome because that information was lacking in the male contribution. Amazing. It would be uh, exciting to be, dis to, to be, you know, discovered as being unique to the area. I'm sure it was a, a big compliment to him. And um, yeah, I think a, a few of the things that you said, are, um, Pretty interesting. Firstly, uh, you know, the image you were talking about, the uh, monkey to the man. I was looking for some advertising pictures for the podcast and that's all I could find all over the internet was that picture. So I've chosen another one. I'll show you at the end of the podcast so you okay. can see if you like it better. Um, but it was, yeah, it was impossible to find one that, that didn't represent that. And then secondly, it's it's funny you talk about the uniqueness of, uh, of of individuals in Africa and how that's different, and maybe maybe they're the key in uh, to to future research in um, in disease management and treatment because you said there's only a few that has been that have been you know um, sequenced. We don't yep. know what information they have or don't have. You know, known knowns and known unknowns, all those things. So it's amazing to think that we've got so little research and there's so much 
available data from those few people and even more so from those in the area that have now either moved or their lineage has changed so you can see that progression over time which may give you even greater detail so it's amazing like you said that there's not more on that <laughs> you think a, a company would decide oh this looks like you know <laughs> i can get some information here but i guess we want to keep it as uh, as open as we can to the public if if it means we don't have to get, sell it to you know a large company or anything like that so um exciting stuff and and again you, you can't do any of this without other people. And uh, I think like what you were saying, you know, finding those, uh, those changing mutation rates is a bit like climate data. And I know that a lot of your research, you included climate data where you're looking at pieces in the past and putting it all together. So what are some of the collaborations you've had in that project and, and how did that come together to, to give you that sure. picture of where, where it all started in the homeland? So it, all my work is built on... Um, what I call interdisciplinary research. I'm a genomicist, but to tell a true science story, and especially when you are generating a hypothesis, remember we cannot prove this hypothesis. We can only generate this hypothesis because none of us lived 200,000 years ago. So we can't, we can't ever, you know, go back and and literally be there. So we have to the only way I believe we can really put the story together is to merge our disciplines together and say, you know, are we getting similar results? What, what is the story telling us? How are we interpreting our data? Um, so genomics is obviously one tool. Um, it's, 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 it's a tool that is used, um, and it's a strong tool because the clock is probably one of the strongest clocks that one can use when you're going back in time. Obviously, paleoanthropologists will use fossil remains and carbon dating. But one of the biggest problems they have in their discipline is they will look at a fossil, a skeleton, and then have to guess, in a way, through the shape of the skeleton, whether this is truly human and what is human. And this is the biggest problem we had with our paper, is how people define human, homo sapiens sapien. Um, some people will talk about Australopithecus as if they are human. Well, where does human start? So what we were trying to say is we're talking about living, breathing humans today. But what the um, students must always remember is we were never alone. We are alone now. But there were numerous species of hominins. In fact, we believe at least four when modern humans come about. So, you know, which which ones are us who pre who preceded us we don't know the full picture of that yet we just know that there were a lot of human-like species even if you just look at australopithecus the most famous being lucy there were multiple types of australopithecus um, you know uh, uh, south africa has three australopithecus that are very famous they're all completely different species they all lived between 1.5 and 2.2 million years ago. But that's at least three that we know of. They appear to be completely different species. How we related to them, we don't know. Bar from the fact they walked up straight, they were hairy, um, they were human-like. <laughs> Something between an ape and a human. Mm. So, um, what was your question again? Just about, <laughs> <laughs> just, that's okay, just about collaboration, you were talking oh, about. Oh, collaboration, yeah, so we, 
so what we did with the collaboration was uh, our genomics data, we actually generated over a 10-year period looking for people with these rare uh, mitre genomes, pieced together the time scale. But we knew that we wouldn't be able to um, only use that data. We needed to look across for other disciplines. So one of the pieces of information that came out pretty early was that the, the south of the Zambezi River, there's this great Zambezi River that sort of cuts off the southern bit of Africa, um, appeared to be really important. We could see that people there, people living south of the river and north of the river and never met ever in 200,000 years. It's like they split. Um, and we could see from our mitogenome data that um, modern humans, we have this family, we have sort of a little bit of activity going on, and then 70,000 years of absolutely nothing, which is incredibly unusual. And then suddenly at 130,000 years ago, it's like everyone goes crazy and they start running around and disappearing. And we go, why? And then this happens from 130,000 years, they go north, and then at 110,000 years, they go south, and they do extremely well. They, we can tell with DNA whether the population gets bigger or smaller or stays the same. And we can see those who went south gradually just got, did well, well, well. Those who went north really struggled. And only much, much later, um, you know, just before the out of Africa, they just go crazy. It's like they just have hundreds of babies and this, you know. So what, why? The big question is always why? Those that stayed south of the Zambezi and didn't appear to go anywhere, the people I still work with today in the Kalahari, they just remain exactly the same, which is what hunter-gatherers do. Hunter-gatherers do not want more mouths to feed. So they seem to be doing what we expect them to do. So we went and we said, well, what was, I mean, I've been to the Great Zambezi River and it's pretty treacherous to cross. So yeah, it would have been hard. It's full of crocodiles and hippos. Hippos are the biggest killer in Africa. So you certainly wouldn't cross it. But what did it look like 200,000 years ago? Who said it looked like that? So we worked with paleogeologists and what we discovered was, which was amazing. If you went there now today, you would just see uh, salt pans and pretty much really hard to live there. Only the Kalahari people can live there who've adapted to this area. You will not survive. So this was the largest lake in the world, in, in Africa. It was larger than Lake Victoria, yeah. but it had already started breaking up around 300,000 years ago. So 200,000 years ago, the region would have been a very big wetland, the size of New Zealand, so both islands, and um, what we also then found out from the paleogeologists and climatologists was the rest of Africa was in a mega drought from 190,000 years to 130,000 years. And the reason Africa was in a mega drought, and when we say a mega drought in climate, it means it's unsustainable for our human life, is because the rest of the world was in an ice age, an extremely long ice when when Europe's in an ice age, Africa's in a mega drought. Um, so we thought, well, that's really interesting. So that meant this would have been an ideal oasis. Um, we also overlaid animal data, so data for genetic data, mitogenome also data for giraffe, lion, and zebra. 
um, done by other groups and we could see the same thing. The animals weren't moving and then suddenly moved. So why did they move? And then what we did is we worked with a climate physicist and we gave him dates and coordinates, but we didn't tell him what we thought. And what he came back with was incredible. He could show that the, the homeland area was in a dry period for that 70,000 years. And then at 130,000 years ago, first of all, it gets green to the north. And we call this opening up vegetative corridors, which allowed the animals and humans will follow the animals, that's the food, um, to leave and go north. But it didn't get wetter south until 110,000 years ago. And then we worked with archaeologists who have already published, who have shown that modern human behavior first started on the southern tip of Africa 100,000 years ago, which coincides with us seeing in our genetic data that the southern migrants did well. And it's actually well known that when people adapt to the ocean, they do extremely well. You can probably see my dog. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> Sorry, everybody. That's, okay. That's my dog. He's adapting to his bed. <laughs> Sounds very happy. So um, it was a lot of pieces of the puzzle um, we had to bring together. And of course, you know, this paper um, did make world news um, because no one had proposed Botswana before as a as a, a homeland. Um, it caused a lot of, it ruffled a few feathers um, in science, which I actually think is fantastic because as scientists, we need to debate. We need to disagree as politicians should, and they don't. Our, they, our job is to have that debate and not let one argument just rule. Um, you show, you find the evidence, you present the evidence, and you put it out there. And if someone proves you wrong, you shake their hand and say, well done, if they're correct. The point is we're presenting the evidence that we have. The evidence is only as good as the evidence you have in hand. Um, but it did ruffle feathers because there is a large contingent who believe that East Africa is the origin of mankind. I don't. Personally, I don't, um, because I believe it's the origin of everyone outside of Africa. But I don't believe, I think our story is bigger than that. Um, so um, I think it's exciting. It's exciting to hear the debate that this paper generated. And the fact that we could do it through our multidisciplinary approach. And we could do it out of Australia, mm -hmm. um, which is also, uh, I, I think that's also important. Um, you know, because usually there are, in science, you get these set teams who believe that, you know, this is where things should be done. We can do it anywhere. That's amazing, um, yeah. Have the right tools, yeah. Yeah, and it, and it is. And we could go on, like, I could just prompt you so many questions here, like how yeah. you're actually, you know, getting the DNA, what kind of sequencing tools are you using? Yeah. But we might... We might move away and just go uh, and, and sort of finish off our little chat on, on this because I don't want to keep you for too long. Um, so, look, I guess you've talked a bit about the patterns and trends and relationships. Is there anything that I've missed that you noticed um, that was of interest to you? Um, I mean, we've, we've talked about most things, but is there anything else you can think of that, that you thought was interesting when you noticed it when looking at the data, the genetics data or... Like how you said you don't believe it's East Africa where it started. Is that because you compared it to data from there? Or is there any other yeah trends or patterns that you might have thought interesting? 
So, so I do think East Africa, personally, I believe East Africa has been what I call the melting pot. I think it still is. I have a project in Kenya and uh, East Africa is amazing. It is like the highway of the world. Um, it's where everyone came. Um, and Lake Victoria obviously was the source of that power, if you want to put that way, is you need water. You need water to to survive. And that now is the largest lake in Africa. And um, so that is the source of life. That's the heartbeat of the continent. And um, so totally understandable that East Africa has always been um, a rich player in our human and multi-species evolution. One thing I always want to warn the students and any scientist and anyone who wants to be in science is, remember your information, I've said this before, but your information is only as good as the information you have. So one of the biggest problems up until our paper was that East Africa has actually been wealth of um, paleoanthropology information. Why? Because the Oma Valley and the wetness of the Victoria Lake has actually preserved fossils a lot better than when you go down to the southern tip of Africa, which um, doesn't preserve the fossils well because the soil is acidic, it's extremely dry, it's only in South Africa in the cradle of humankind that has a nice a wet cave under the ground that has kept fossils. Otherwise, if you walk through Namibia, walk through Botswana, nothing's going to survive it. Not you and not any bone. And Australia has the same issue. You know, you go through the centre of Australia, nothing's going to survive it. Why can we do so much work on mammoths and Neanderthals that are 40,000 years old? Because they were kept in a nice freezer in Siberia. So that's why the research is only as good as our data or data we have. So we've always got to keep that in mind. Of course, it's important information, but we've got to remember that there's so much more to discover. And uh, hopefully a lot of you will go into science and that will be there for you to discover. Well, it sounds like there is plenty to do there and uh, lots of interesting things that might all come together um, as yours did in a very nice way with that climate data coming in. I like that you didn't tell the climate scientist exactly uh, <laughs> exactly what you, you know you wanted. You didn't want to have any bias, which is, again, good to talk about in, in science because we want to minimize it in every way possible. Um, so, so from everything that you collected and all that information, where, where is that area of your research heading and and uh, yeah where's that going now so you know there it's a very interesting question because you change your i can say your goals in life um in what stage of life you're at so i would say that i would have a few years ago just told you one goal and that goal was really to use this information um to understand us as modern humans to to understand disease. So to understand disease, we need to understand who we are. To understand who we are, we need to understand our past. Our past is who we are, it's our future. It's how we have evolved as modern humans. We are one family. It actually, 200,000 years isn't that long. It had dictates. So my disease I like to study is prostate cancer because it's one of those evolutionary question marks of a disease. Also, it has a very strong link to Africa. 
So um, it's a disease for me to understand my disease. I, I believe the best steps I've made in my research has been through trying to understand our past. To me, they're one project. Um, so it's a different approach they're taking. But now later on in life and also um, everyone's gone through COVID, everyone has gone through a very interesting 2020. I think there is another facet to our research which is really important. And that is that we are one global world. And is I never really thought of this before that as scientists we can actually make a world difference as well because the science just reminds us again that we came from one family so the homeland that we call it that's one family that's us so you know a lot of this world drama that we have to see all the time it rarely is stupid <laughs> because uh we're fighting against ourselves we're fighting against our own families uh so you know if that can be used in, in an alternative way a non scientific way but just to make people stop and think that we're actually talking about a very very small differences um, between us as modern humans I mean it sounds like 3.2 million it's not actually a lot in the scope of the amount of letters that we have in our code yes they make me have red hair or someone else had dark hair or you know um, you're susceptible to some disease but we're all one family um, and I really hope that uh, you know, one can step beyond just the science and uh, realize the reality of who we are. I think it's really a nice way to put it, um, to put all that information into into the whole purpose, like giving it a reason. And I think as, you know, people who, you know, use science every day, we just realize we're just all this stuff put together. I mean, if you get into the physics of it, <laughs> we can go even further. What What are we really? But... Exactly. Yeah, it is. It is a bit, um, I guess, enlightening when you when you see all that coming from one family and and all that information coming together to just make you wonder why there's so much, yeah, happening in the world that it is unnecessary. So it's good to to know that there are people like you that are on top of this and have the ability to uh, to make change in the world because I'm sure it's making a difference. Um, Look, before I move on to the last question, something that's exciting you in science, maybe beyond your research, um, is there anything from the project that I might have missed that you thought might be interesting for people at home to know? Um, I think from the project um, perspective, um, you know, you asked about my collaborations and how it all came about. But I think the biggest collaboration that I didn't mention is the collaboration I've had and still have with the last remaining hunter-gatherers um, because that I can't even put a value on that. Um, the amount I've learned from them um, is, is astronomical because to be able to even picture the way we all lived for 190,000 years, it's disappearing. Um, that, that knowledge is going to be gone soon. Um, so to have had the opportunity spent over 10 years with them going back and forth and it's, um, it's, it's really humbling to learn so much from people who don't write anything down. Um, so yeah, to me that has and probably always will be the highlight of my research career is the time I spend with them 
um, in the Kalahari. And the fact that we were able to take this information that we learned back to them, for them to be part of the discussions before nature even got it. Um, that was pretty cool. Um, drawing pictures in the sand and having discussions. So just because someone can't read or write doesn't mean they don't understand. Um, so yeah, I've learned a lot as a person uh, through them. And um, so, yeah, I hope some of what I call the other side of science, um, I can relate to people. Um, that is what they want, by the way, from this project. Um, why they've worked with us for such a long time is they want their stories to be told. Um, because they know that their lifestyle uh, has a time limit on it and it's very fast mm. uh, changing and, and they can't stop it. Um, so it's not to say that we have to go back to living as hunter-gatherers, we can't. But I think if we can remember our past and appreciate where we come from and appreciate the skills that we actually have lost, we've lost a lot of skills that we had, um, I think we'll just be better aware people. Yeah. Part of me wants to um, send all of the teenagers from high school over there <laughs> so they can learn, you know, a little bit about what you're talking about, that yeah. life lesson that is uh, something you can't get from a from a book or even, unfortunately, from a podcast. So, yeah, yeah. whatever whatever way they can, I hope it inspires some of them to, to go out and, and see, you know, see when they can the world and people, yeah. other people, not just those people, but other people and how they live. So, yeah, I yeah. think that's a really, really nice way to put it. You talk about them like they're family, which is really nice as well. Um, I guess the last couple of questions would be, what else is exciting you in science in the field at the moment? Is there something in your research or something that someone else is doing that you're excited about? Yeah, so the thing I'm really excited about, which is where our research is going, is, is the, this concept of precision medicine, um, which is really where we aspire to get to. Um, which is the idea that you're not treating a disease, you're treating an individual. Um, and it all goes back to our human evolutionary work. Yes, we are all similar, but we are individuals. And it's those individual changes that dictate whether we respond to a drug or we don't, whether we, you know, get COVID and have no symptoms or we die from it. Um, these are also things that make us individuals. And it's more complex we are learning. It's more complex than just really our DNA. It's our genome, it's our epigenome, it's our microbiome. It's um, so the bugs that live in and on us, uh, the epigenome, what we are exposed to in utero, even before we're born, the, you know, the exposome as we call it now, it's a new term. Uh, most scientists don't even know that term. Nope, I've never heard of it. Not that um, I'm yeah, most people haven't heard of it. So <laughs> there we go. The students can learn a new term that no one at my work even knows. <laughs> um, so in other words, things you're exposed to, what chemicals you're exposed to. Um, you know, we are complex beings. And so what really excites me is, although I... I'm sad to say it, but big data, um, <laughs> the fact that we're able to put all these pieces of the puzzle together now, um, it's only slowly coming together. We've been able to look at genomes now for a while, but looking at just the DNA alone without having all the information on the person, 
without having all that information to tie it all together. That's exciting. I mean, that's difficult. I love difficult questions, but it is possible now because there are very smart young people coming through. Um, the new generation, you guys are going to be the ones who solve this because you've grown up with a computer in your hand, a computer in your face. Um, you guys have the opportunity to know how to use these tools to, to deal with big data, to bring these things together. It's not the way my generation grew up. We've had to learn this all. But you've, you, you come from the place I came from by being able to understand the cultures because I grew up with them. I knew the languages. I knew the different. You are growing up with the computers and with the tools that is natural to you. Um, so you are going to be the guys to solve the next uh, questions. And that's why we need the youngsters in our labs now, because you look at things differently. So that, I think, is absolutely the future. And that's why I said I hate to say it, because <laughs> don't put a whole lot of data points in front of me, but get a whole lot of youngsters. They love looking at these data points. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it is the future. It is the way we're going to solve big questions. And cancer is a big question. For sure. It sounds like, you know, you've got this big puzzle to put pieces together and you're only just starting to get the corners in and, and you're waiting for the for the youngins to come in and go, oh, this piece clearly goes here and here and here. And, and to them, it seems obvious. And yes, I'm, I, you know, it won't be long until there's probably an iPhone attachment for your genome. You know, you can just plug in and away you go in any country and might be a there bit... There is already. Oh, gosh, really? There is a technology that's already done that. Um <laughs> Uh, I haven't tried it out in the bush yet, oh, um, wow. and there's reasons for that, but we could do a whole section on technology. But technology <laughs> is what changes feel, and um, and if you do like informatics, if you do like computer science, it's not a bad field to go into. You will have a job. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And yeah. I think I'll have you and Lauren back on to talk maybe next year as the technology changes to do these interviews um, so you can tell me about the latest stuff because yeah, it would be uh, it would be very interesting to hear how things have changed as yeah. they're progressing so quick now with genomics. So, yeah. oh, very exciting stuff, and um, yeah, I, uh, I'm certainly looking forward to the future because I'm probably going to be one of the ones benefiting from all those discoveries <laughs> the students make. Um, look, I can't be uh, you know appreciative enough for you to come on here and spend your time. I know you're busy. It sounds like you're doing a thousand projects at once, um, but you're making a difference. And I'm sure the students and the teachers listening to this are also very appreciative. Um, so before I go, is there any uh, place where people can reach you? Do you have a you know an email or a Twitter or what, what kind of ways do you want people to contact you? <laughs> yeah, so we can do a whole psychology session. I decided not to go on Twitter, but... Um, yeah, I have a Facebook account because it allows us to post some of our social pictures up. Um, uh, so under um, at Prof Vanessa Hayes, there's also Idzormo, which is our prostate cancer project, probably hard to spell. Um, I and then D-Z-O-M-O. -O. Um, and, um, you know, you can find me in Garvin. You can find me at University of Sydney. Um, pretty much I can't hide. So <laughs> <laughs> whether I have short red hair or long red hair, it's all me. Um, so 
Um, but yeah, email v.hayes at garland.org.au. If you don't hear from me, we do have a communications uh, group. Um, they are often the best way to filter because we get so many emails a day. So please be patient. Um, you know, uh, you, you guys are the future. You are the next generation. So, um, and your questions, there is never a stupid question. Um, questions are always, that's what we do as scientists, we question. So, um, yeah, please keep asking. Keep asking those questions. And, and as I said in the beginning, it's passion. So if you're passionate about something, even if you think it's far-fetched, uh, I certainly did not believe I'd be the person to sequence the first African, but I did. So um, go for it. Uh, if you believe it, um, and you're passionate about it, it will work. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful place to finish up. <laughs> um, thanks again, and uh, I hope you guys got everything out of this that I did. I really enjoyed that. And just before I go today, guys, I do want to mention our new show sponsor, and that is STEM Reactor. If you want to do anything at school related to biotech uh, but don't have the resources, make sure you check them out at stemreactor.com.au. I know they're good because they came to our school and they helped our extension science students out. So a very big thank you to them and thank you for sponsoring the show. So check them out at stemreactor.com.au.